Good. Well, there's some people alive, so that's good. Uh, well, good morning. If I've not met you before, my name is Josh. I am, uh, I, uh, until the end of this month, I am part of the staff team working part-time uh, to help the church uh, kind of engage in community organizing and uh, campaigning around issues of justice and also thinking about how we develop leaders and build relationships with other institutions in the area. I spend the rest of my time uh, working for a bishop in the House of Lords, so it is a random and varied week. Uh, I, you know, after July, I, I look forward to uh, still being part of St. John's and I will still be taking on the very important role and exciting role of being your deanery synod rep. Uh, so pray for me there. Uh, but if you are new to St. John's or you haven't been here for a few months, we, you join us mid, kind of towards the end of a series thinking about what is the good news. So as you may have noticed, we now have two services uh, in the morning, and we did that so that we could I- increase our capacity, so that we could invite more people to come to church, to come to encounter Jesus. And we are spending a few months thinking about why are we bothering to do this? What is it about Jesus that's worth inviting people to encounter? So we've been spending the last few months hearing people's stories, uh, some looking at particular Bible passages, some just telling their own testimonies mainly about how God has moved powerfully in uh, individual lives and in communities and saying, this is the good news that we want people to encounter. And I would encourage you to go back and listen to some of the sermons that are online uh, and see the ways in which God has been touching and moving in uh, the lives of our congregation and members of this community. Uh, and, how, and, and take that as an encouragement that he could move in your life just the same and move in the lives of your friends, family, colleagues, uh, the people that you're at school with uh, in just the same way. But so I... I'm going to share some of what this good news has come to mean to me, particularly in the last year. Uh, And before we properly begin, uh, let us pray. God, thank you that your plans are not our plans. Amen. Amen. (laughs) For... Uh, I don't know if, a couple, if anyone here is a fan of the band Arcade Fire, uh, but for those of you that aren't, they have recently uh, released their uh, new, new single, the first single out of the album, uh, and it is called Everything Now. And I love Arcade Fire, partly because as well as making good music, they are also able to name and call out particular things in culture and wide society and comment on them. Uh, and frame them in a way that perhaps you hadn't seen before. And this song, Everything Now, is about the demands of a society to have access to everything immediately. So the refrain constantly is, everything now. We want more, we want to consume more, we want access to more stuff. We want immediacy, we want intimacy, we want it all. And the song ends with, uh, everything now, till every room in my house is filled with stuff uh, that I cannot live without everything now, I need it, everything now, I can't live without, everything now, I can't live, everything now, and then very poignantly ends with, every inch of space in my heart is filled with something I'll never start. And I think that speaks powerfully to the moment, the cultural moment where we are, that we are so barraged with choice and access to information and 
uh, experiences that we become overwhelmed, that there's a form of paralysis. But we still seek to grab stuff and hold on to things because they seem to be things that we can't live without. We, seem, we want to get our identity from somewhere and so we grab the next thing and we keep on going. And we're terrified of the... It seems that wider culture is terrified of the fact that we might be found out, that we might be left with nothing, that when all that stuff and all the experiences are taken away, what is going to be left of us? Our flaws, our weakness, our sins. That's, we're, going to, we're going to be left bare before ourselves, before others, before God. Equally, I, I was struck uh, listening to the new single by Jay-Z, where he kind of is, is talking about uh, having made a mistake and... Uh, worrying about what, what will happen when his children find out about this mistake, when he has to sit down and tell them what's gone on. And he says, uh, if I wasn't a superhero in your face, my heart breaks the day I have to explain my mistakes, and the mask goes away. I think some of what this everything now is about is the fact that we are terrified about, at some stage, the mask will slip. People will clock who we truly are. We will have to encounter the world as it really is. And what's going to happen? We're going to have to, rec- going to, have to engage somehow with our failures. We're going to have to engage with how the world really is. And we're going to have to engage with how re- we really are. We see that, so, so we clamor for more. We clamor for noise to drown out these worries, these anxieties. But of course they don't fix them. And in our Bible passage today we see that this cry for everything now, this cry for immediacy, this cry for noise, has been present in the Bible and has been present for the whole of human history. And we see it as a motif in the Bible. We see it in the desert when the Israelites are saying, God, you took us out of Egypt, but at least we had food there. At least we had security. Give us that. Give us security. Don't lead us into this wilderness here. And there is also in particularly in the kind of prophetic books, there is this rumination on what it is to be in exile. And that's what we find ourselves uh, with in Jeremiah today. Because it is strange that in some ways, bits of the passage that was read for us have been taken out of context. In some ways, I would say, they have fallen victim and they have been used to justify this everything now mentality. So verse 11, when we... is so often talked about because it's, and we often talk about the kind of, oh, well, just God, God has plans for our, for, to not bring us into harm, to bring us uh, prosperity. And, and it seems to me that we often emphasize the, I have plans for you. So we assume that there are plans. We assume that God is going to do all the things that we want. Whereas actually, it's clear that the emphasis in this passage is actually on the for surely I have plans, I know the plans I have for you. So it's not about God saying, whatever you want, I'm going to give it to you immediately. But it's about, don't worry, I've got it, and here's what I want you to do. In, ver- in chapter 28, uh, the, the, there's, there's been a lot of uh, reflection uh, in the people of God as to what has happened, uh, what has what why God has allowed the Babylonians to come in and to take uh, things from the temple, take, thing, take some of the elders out of Jerusalem and take them to Babylon. And uh, one false prophet, Hananiah, stands up and says, 
well, ha, I have heard from God, and it's all going to be fine, because he's going to break the yoke of the Babylonians, and he's going to take us, uh, going to take the elders back to Jerusalem, going to put all the things back in the temple within two years. And and people go, great, this sounds amazing. Okay, this must be from God. Jeremiah then stands up and says, no, I've heard something different. Hananiah isn't from God. We're going to be here a while. And this is kind of back and forth in verse 28 between Hananiah and Jeremiah about what God is really saying. And it ends with Jeremiah saying, Hananiah, to prove that you are, to prove that I am right, I I will see that you're going to die within a year. And within a year, Hananiah is dead. So it's in that context that Jeremiah then writes this letter to the exiles in Jerusalem who must have heard these rumors of these different interpretations of what God is doing. And he says, basically hold tight. He says, seek the welfare of the city that that the Lord has carried you into exile. Invest in that place. You're You're not moving on anytime soon. And then when verse 11 comes in, he says, and you're not moving on anytime soon, and when you do, they're my plans. They're not yours. They're my plans. They're not yours. I wonder, it seems to me, if you read verse 28, there is, there is part of me that seems that in some ways Hananiah's response, the assumption that God is just going to act, is, seems more, in some ways more spiritual. Does that make sense? So that Jeremiah seems a bit of a pessimist, whereas Hananiah is saying, God will act, and that'll be fine. That seems in some ways more spiritual, but actually it's deficient spirituality, because what it's saying is there are limitations on how God can act. So God must only really want to meet us properly when we're in Jerusalem, and God must only have plans for the, the exiles in Jerusalem, not the Babylonians, and also... God hasn't been acting previously, so we need God to act. Whereas Jeremiah is saying, actually, God can meet you and move powerfully among you in Babylon. God has plans through you for the people in Babylon. And I've always been working, and will continue to work uh, in and amidst, amidst you, regardless of whether you think I am or not. And that's hard, because... I think a lot of this is about, in in reading passages like this, we come against the fact that often we make our own ideas, we make our own plans about what we want from God into an idol. And we allow them to uh, to get in the way. And we enter relationship with God, we enter relationship with other people, we enter relationship with the world with a set assumptions about what we want from them. And then we try and make them other people, the world, even God, conform to what we, have, we expect. And that's, and that's one, it leads to conflict within relationships, but also, also, it's fundamentally crushing because it comes out of that expectation for each of us that in some ways we can justify ourselves. In some ways we can make the world as we want it to, And as soon as we start to do that, as soon as we start to action our plans and they fail, what are we left with? The mask slips. We're no longer the superhero we wanted to be. Where do we go from there? And yet, God does seem to be, in this passage, God does seem to say, well, seek the welfare of the the city. Seek, 
Seek it. Uh, try and do good. Kind of try and do good. Invest in that place. But that all comes out of the assurance in verse 11 that he says, I- I've got you. It's interesting, the, the word that we translate as peace or welfare is the word shalom, which is often translated as peace, but also has a sense of completeness. So in verse 11, where God is saying, I have plans for your, not, to not to bring you to harm, for your welfare, for your completeness. As from the other side of the cross, we read that with the reassurance that actually God has us, and in the cross, everything is made complete. Our identity is found in the cross, our significance is found in the cross, our meaning is found in the cross. So he's saying, you don't need Jerusalem for significance to encounter me. You don't even need the particular things to be in the temple just as they were. You can meet me where you are, and I can work through you where you are. But it all comes out, it has to come out of the recognition that God has done it. Christ has accomplished it. That is where true welfare seeking can only begin. Because if we come to a community seeking to prove ourselves, seeking to create it into something that we desire, then we are no longer engaging with the people, no longer engaging us with the city that God has called us to exile, but violently trying to form people into our program, into an idol that we have created. But Jesus says, because I have done it, you don't need to find meaning, significance in these places, but instead you do it to witness to me. I've been struck by this over the last year when I've been engaging in kind of local political campaigning and also national campaigning about how small a difference I make, about how often I fail. I've spent a long time, uh, not as long as some, but you know, just parts of this year, uh, Try, kind of doing some work around welcoming refugees or uh, thinking about how government policy could be better towards refugees. And I, you know, I and countless others put in time to that, and yet there are still refugees in camps. There are still people dying in the Mediterranean. So if I was looking to that for my identity, I would be crushed because I'm... Seeking justice, seeking change in the world is, con- is constantly kind of coming up against failure, constantly coming against how broken the world is. But whenever I do that, I'm able to return to the cross of Christ, return to God's love for me and say, no, that is not where I seek my identity, but because of my identity in Jesus Christ, I will seek the welfare of the city. I will try and work in the small, incomplete ways that I can to witness to God's love. This is something I love about St. John's is the fact that the way in which we use community organizing as a way of very incompletely saying that there's something more. Here is a concrete demonstration of the fact the world could be different. Even if it's something as small as, uh, get it, as, as getting a bin moved in a flat or getting a, getting a sign put up in a crossing uh, that means that children can walk safely across the road. Because what that does then is as a concrete sign, every time the children would walk past that sign, they say, I did that. I was involved in that campaign. I changed it somewhat. And that changes their view of themselves. But we can only do that work by not saying we want a particular vision for this neighborhood, but simply saying we want this neighborhood to thrive. We want it to flourish and to, and to 
establish what that means, we need to listen. We need to work out what God is doing in our midst already and join in. One of the joys of this year has been learning from this church community and then also learning from other church communities. So that there are two other interns that I've been uh, working with. They're based in other churches. Uh, Shamara is from a Pentecostal background and uh, Dunstan is from a Catholic background. And I've loved kind of drawing on their different insights and learning uh, with and from them. And recently Dunstan uh, wrote a beautiful piece on a lot of this stuff, on community organising and why bother. And he quoted uh, an encyclical from Pope Francis. And he contrasted this idea of realities and ideas. So kind of what, what is actually the case and what we perhaps want that to be the case. Where Pope Francis writes, Realities simply are, whereas ideas are worked out. There has to be continuous dialogue between the two, lest ideas become detached from reality. It is dangerous to dwell in the realm of words alone, of images and rhetoric. So a third principle comes into play. Realities are greater than ideas. We have politicians and even religious leaders who wonder why people do not understand and follow them. Since their proposals are so clear and logical, perhaps it's because they are stuck in the realm of pure ideas and end up producing politics or fate to rhetoric. I wonder, I'm certainly guilty of that. I am prone to, to over-intellectualize things, to engage things on the level of ideas, rather than actually saying, how is, what is God actually doing in this place? What is God actually doing with the people that he has brought into my life? I wonder, is that true of you? Are you in a work situation where the only thing you can think of, the only thing that you're asking God for, is what's next? Can you draw me on to the next thing, God? I want something else, God. And I'm not saying there aren't places for that prayer, but there, is, but there is certainly also the prayer which says, God, what are you up to? I trust that you are here. I trust that you didn't arrive with me, but were working in this place before. What are you up to? How do I seek the welfare of this place? Not to form it into a particular way to justify myself, but simply out of reflection, reflecting your love and your welcome that you have offered me. I wonder, who do you need to listen to? Who do you need to ask about their passions, about what they, what they want to see change, and then work with them to uh, see that? I, I think one of, the, real, one of the, the good news of Jesus Christ is the fact that we can listen to people and we can accept people as they really are, and we can accept the world as it really is, because we are no longer looking to the world for justification, but we look to the cross of Christ for justification. We see the reality of the cross and the resurrection, And then in the context of the arms of Christ, he holds the rest of reality. So we are able to step into the difficulties of the world, engage in that that process and say, how can I make this a bit better? I'm not going to solve this, but how can I make it a bit better? And I can dare doing that because of Jesus' cross, because of his resurrection. But this is difficult because ideas, our own plans, our own dreams are safer. We don't risk failure with ideas. Ideas don't fail. Actions do. Reality does. But again, are you willing to step into that? Are you willing to say, in small ways, I'm going to try and join in with what the Spirit's doing, and I might screw up, and I might fail, but that's okay, because God's got me. In the long run, he's got... I know, I know that he's got the plans for me. 
I don't need to worry about that. So are we perhaps focusing so much on what we want God to do that we're missing what God is actually doing? The good news is that God has been in Hoxton much longer than any of us and will be here much longer than any of us. We are not going to complete the work, but we simply add to the work that will finally be completed on his return. I wonder, do you come into church with perhaps a similar attitude? I've been challenged recently by the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, who was writing in the uh, mid-20th century, the theologian, in his, the first chapter of his book, Life Together, which is a brilliant book, very challenging. Uh, and he has words uh, that are perhaps directed at the Hananias of this world. He writes, God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and himself accordingly. Because God has already laid the only foundation of our fellowship, because God has bound us together in one body with other Christians in Jesus Christ, long before we entered into common life with them, we enter into that common life not as demanders, but as thankful recipients. Christian brother and sisterhood is not an ideal which we must realize, it is rather a reality which we must participate the more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and strength and promise of all our fellowship is in Jesus Christ alone, the more serenely shall we think of our fellowship and pray and hope for it. Your job is not to plan. Your job is not to uh, decide how St. John's should be. Our job is to cherish the fact that God has brought us into St. John's as it is to discern together what the Spirit is doing in this place and outside and join in with that. The Spirit is working. That is good news. Don't miss what the Spirit is doing because of what you want the Spirit to do. Be honest about what you want the Spirit to do, but never to the exclusion of recognizing with thankfulness and joy that he has given you this community. He has given you this place. And this is hard because I know I've spent a lot of this year because in some, in partly because of the work I'm doing and partly because of uh, the stage of life that I'm at, that I'm trying to think about what God has, what God wants me to do with my life, that I'm, some, that I'm always grasping for a plan uh, and I want some order to this. Uh, and there have just been, you know, very, I'm very grateful for the way in which this community and particular conversations have witnessed to the fact that I'm not going to get the plan that I want, but I am going. But but I God has brought me to this place, and I can join in with what the Spirit is doing here. And then there may become a time where God says, "Okay, I'm going to lead you on to the next thing," but that's for Him to worry about. That's not for me. And I know ultimately that even as I fail, even as I screw up, that. I can incompletely seek the welfare because he has completed the work and he will complete the work on his return. That is good news and that has implications for how we see ourselves in our community, in our workplaces, in our families. 
What are the ways in which you are loving perhaps the idea of a community, the idea of individuals, instead of actually loving that individual, instead of actually loving that community, instead of actually seeking to discern what the Spirit is doing in that person? Let's pray. God, thank you that your plans are not our plans. We pray that we would join in with your plans. Amen.